Hello everyone and welcome back to SciSection. I'm Halima, your journalist for this week, and today we are delighted to have Dr. Jennifer Gomerman. Dr. Jennifer is a professor and the Associate Chair of Graduate Studies in the Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto. Additionally, she holds the Canada Research Chair in Tissue-Specific Immunity. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I guess to begin, could you provide a description of what your academic career looked like that led you to where you are today? Sure. So um, in broad strokes, I trained as an immunologist. Uh, I did my undergraduate and graduate degrees at the University of Toronto, which is um, really one of the strongest immunology departments. And um, from there, I decided to do further postdoctoral training uh, at Harvard Medical School, where I broadened my expertise to include uh, animal models of disease and infection. And then I actually went to industry for about three years. I worked at a company called Biogen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, learned a lot about how to develop drugs and therapeutics, and uh, also gained an interest in the human disease called multiple sclerosis. Um, in 2003, I returned to Canada and um, started my lab at the University of Toronto as an assistant professor. And um, my initial research was to continue uh, the work I'd started in multiple sclerosis and also studying molecules of a, a family called the TNF family. And then through the years, um, as, I, as my lab grew and my research um, broadened, um, I became very interested in the mucosal immune system in the gut and how this actually impacts um, diseases that are far from the gut, such as multiple sclerosis, which is really an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord. And then uh, coming up to present day, um, when COVID hit, um, we actually, as a lab, realized we had a fair bit of expertise in studying mucosal immune responses. We'd done a lot of work on a virus called rotavirus, and we knew how to measure those antibod the antibodies that are made to rotavirus. And we realized that because SARS-CoV-2 is a virus that um, enters through mucosal surfaces in the nose and in the mouth, that uh, that was something that we really needed to understand and learn more about. And so we partnered with another lab at Mount Sinai in Toronto and developed tests to measure antibodies in both the blood um, and in our case, saliva as a biofluid that would be a proxy of what might be going on in the local mucosal immune response in the oral cavity. And we've just posted a preprint on that work if you're interested at MedArchive and it's under peer review and um, hopefully it'll be published soon. And that's where we are right now. That is super duper interesting. I just like to ask, were you always kind of fascinated with science and bio from like a young age and teenagehood that kind of inspired your work today? Well, I think um, I, I, I wasn't specifically interested in science, but it was something that I did well. Uh, in school, in high school, I, I got grades in, in my math and science courses. And when I started university, it seemed natural to continue with, um, with science because it was something I, I liked. Um, but honestly, I took a lot of different courses throughout my university and toyed with other um, subject matters, such as sociology and literature and even French, and um, really didn't settle on a major until uh, my third year. Uh, well, I mean, we have to declare a major in our second year at U of T, and I declared it to be microbiology. But in my third year, I took this immunology course, and um, then it was like a thunderclap. I realized that this was something I really wanted to study 
um, more seriously because it was just a system I had never even thought of or considered that we have this defense system that really permeates every tissue of our body. And so I actually switched my program of study over to immunology. As it happens, microbiology was a nice pairing for immunology. So I actually had a blended major specialist um, in those two subjects and then uh, carried on from there. So it wasn't so much that I was laser focused from high school onwards. I just sort of led, I, I went where my interests took me. Is that something that you would recommend to undergrad students, kind of dipping their feet in various subject matters instead of being a little bit more close-minded? Yeah, in fact, my, my oldest son, he is just starting first year university next year, and um, his passion is math and physics, but he also loves thinking about politics and social justice and social change. And so we talked a lot about, you know, what would an elective look like for him? Because um, an elective choice can often morph into something more than just an elective. And I think it's really hard to know when you're, when you're 18 what you want to do for the rest of your life. So it's good to keep an open mind. And also different courses give you different skill sets. Um, so if you just take, um, you know, if you, you're going to need breadth requirements, of course, but if you only gravitate towards those courses where you need to do multiple choice uh, tests and so on, and you're never obliged to write something down, you don't really work that skill as much as you could. And it's like a muscle. You need to, um, if you want to be a good writer, for example, you need to write. And so um, I think that the advantage of taking a broad array of subjects is that you um, you become a more well-rounded student, not just in terms of what you know, but what you can do and how you can apply that to your future career. And as a scientist, I would say I spend most of my time writing. Um, and to be a good scientist and to do well publishing papers and getting grants, you have to be a good writer. Um, so I had a bit of a leg up because I'd taken courses where I really had to write critically early on. That is amazing, amazing advice. So I think you mentioned before that a large portion of the lab that you lead at UFT is involved um, in studying multiple sclerosis. For those who may be unaware, what exactly is MS and why is it such a fundamental part of the work that you do? So um, multiple sclerosis is uh, what's called an autoimmune disease. An autoimmune mm -hmm. disease is a disease where your immune system starts attacking your own tissues. So examples are multiple sclerosis, where the immune system attacks the brain and spinal cord, or rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system attacks the joints, or psoriasis, where the immune system attacks the skin, etc. So uh, multiple sclerosis is really important uh, to study um, among Canadians because we have the highest rate of multiple sclerosis in the world. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, um, and some people think it's due to our latitude or maybe some of the environmental influences or maybe genetics, we have a really high rate of this disease. And MS is interesting because there's been a lot of therapies that are pretty good at managing the uh, so-called relapsing, remitting version of MS. Um, and so it's been a, a cool thing to study from an immunological point of view because we've seen progress and we've um, really seen a lot of um, deeper understanding in terms of how the immune system impacts um, the, the CNS. Um, but there's still forms of MS that are very untreatable, like the progressive forms of MS. So um, there's still a lot of unmet clinical need. So I study it for two reasons. One, because people are suffering from this disease in Canada and it's a cruel disease and I'd like to see better therapies um, mm -hmm. 
in, in both the relapsing st stage, but also something that will impact the progressive stage. But secondly, as a sort of immunological disease, it's kind of got everything. You can study how immune cells are first triggered to respond to proteins, in particular myelin, in the CNS. So that's a whole field of study. You can study how do the immune cells go from being in a lymph node all the way up to the CNS and how do they cross the blood-brain barrier. You can understand how immune cells interact with glial cells in the brain and what that looks like. And that's something that's been fairly difficult to study, but is making a lot of progress now in the, um, in the age of RNA sequencing and multi-parameter analysis. And you can study um, what, um, what aspects of the human body are used uh, in the immune system to actually quiet inflammation and to encourage repair. So there's so many different um, entry points for an immunologist to, to get in there and try to understand this disease. And so it makes it very, um, a very exciting topic as an immunologist to tackle. Mm -hmm. It definitely appears to be a very, very diverse field. And in your research, have you ever had a specific finding or a study that you have found particularly interesting, maybe even um, groundbreaking for treating the disease? I would say that um, in my career as a principal investigator, as a prof, um, I've had two findings that have really kind of knocked my socks off mm -hmm. and that I was really pleased about. The first was um, we published a paper um, in 2011, where we showed that this, um, and this isn't about MS, it's about a kidney disease called IgA nephropathy. We were able to show we could model this disease in, in a mouse model. And nothing's really known about this disease um, in terms of how to best treat it. It's treated with steroids. It's not, it's also the most common form of what we call glomerular nephritis in people. And so people who have this disease often need a kidney transplant uh, eventually. So it's, it's not a good disease to have. And what we noticed is that two things in this animal model. First of all, there was this cytokine um, called BAF um, that was elevated and was really important for mediating the disease. And secondly, that the disease did not uh, manifest itself if the mice didn't have a microbiota. So actually at McMaster, um, we were assisted in, in, in making these mice what we call germ-free. In other words, they don't have a microbiome, so they don't have any of the natural bacteria that we would ordinarily have in our gut or on our skin. So these mice were completely sterile. And when that was the case, they didn't develop the kidney disease. And that was really, maybe in retrospect, it wasn't, we know so much more about the microbiome now that maybe that's not a surprise, but at the time that was actually a big surprise. And that paper actually got pretty much ignored <laughs> for a few years. And uh, the field, at least the IJ nephropathy field, were, they, they didn't buy it. They didn't really, I don't know. They just, for whatever reason, it wasn't cited. It, wasn't, it was kind of ignored. But then um, some studies started coming out that really confirmed our findings. For one thing, in humans, when you do uh, an assessment of the genetics of these patients, one of the top hits was a, um, a cytokine that's related to BAFT called April. And we had found that a, the patients with IgA nephropathy in our study did have elevated levels of April. So this unbiased genetic screen picked up the same pathway that we had identified, which was very gratifying. It was actually two separate studies. And then in addition, um, there was a growing appreciation that this disease might be treatable by using steroids that act only in the gut, um, that really prevent inflammation in the gut. And so now, um, you know, I, I wasn't really 
you know, central to that field. I was sort of dabbling on the, on the edges. But then out of the blue, I got a, um, an invitation to participate in the IGA Nephropathy Congress that they have once every two years. And they gave me a keynote slot to speak. And so suddenly the paper was being paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And so that was really cool as a scientist to watch our research go from basic finding all the way to the clinic and to see some, um, some work that was coming out of that, that people were actually starting to design drugs around around this concept that the microbiome and this cytokine bath or April might collaborate to cause problems in the kidney. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the only study that, that got them there, but it was an important one. So that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. That is incredibly interesting. And now I guess segueing in some of the other work that you're doing, I recently read a U of T article featuring your take on COVID-19 vaccine development, which is something I think you mentioned in our conversation earlier. I wanted to ask, what type of work are you conducting in your lab related to that pressing need? Yeah, so um, we decided early on that there must be, uh, or we hypothesized early on that there must be a local immune response in, um, in the oral cavity, because that's really where the virus enters. And in fact, we know that it proliferates in the upper airways while you're asymptomatic. And then the virus then transitions to going deeper in the lungs and it can cause a lot of problems there. We also know that there's a lot of people who don't get any symptoms. So we think that that initial immune response is probably really important. And um, so we went about measuring antibody levels in the saliva while my colleague and Claude Gengra at Mount Sinai was measuring them in the blood. So completely independent work. And then we, we put our data together and found that they correlated really well, mm -hmm. um, which was gratifying. It means that saliva might be a biofluid to think about when we're looking for antibodies, although it's not quite as sensitive as blood. But the second thing that we learned from those experiments is that we had samples from a whole variety of time points, from the acute phase of the disease, people who were sick in hospital, all the way through to convalescence, um, when people had recovered from the virus and were three and four months out from their original symptoms. And what we found was the antibody levels for some of the um, tests that we did, not all, but some, were quite stable through that four-month period. Um, and there are other studies that have come out all around the same time and really in the last two weeks um, that have um, confirmed that finding that there is, um, um, even in asymptomatic people, many of them make a very stable um, antibody response that can last for a few months as far as we've looked because, you know, the pandemic hasn't been with us for very long. Yeah. And so that was really good news because um, there was um, a previous study that came out a couple of months ago that said, no, 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 our antibodies crash down in the basement after we get this uh, virus and our neutralizing antibodies, that is the antibodies that actually sop up the virus and get rid of it, were also declining. And so far, um, that study has not been seen to be replicated in these other studies. And there could be lots of reasons for that, probably technical. But it means that our initial doom and gloom thinking that, oh my gosh, we can't make a good immune response to this thing is actually probably incorrect and that most people, not everybody, but most people make a good durable antibody response to this virus. And that bodes really well for vaccine design. So if we can make an antibody response to this virus that lasts at least for four months, then a vaccine is, is going to probably work, whether it works for a year or two years or six months, we don't know, but at least it rationalizes um, all of these vaccine efforts that are ongoing. And it gives me a lot of hope that we're gonna get something that's gonna give reasonable humoral immunity, maybe cellular immunity against COVID-2, 
And if it's designed properly, then that should also confer some herd immunity against the virus if everyone takes it, or as mm -hmm. many who can take it, take it. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. And definitely, I hope that work can transfer for some vaccine development that I think a lot of us are looking forward to. Um, so I guess with everything that we've discussed, immunology appears to definitely be a very, very interesting field. And so what can an undergrad student um, interested in immunology expect in their academic career or in their career choices? Well, first of all, if, if you're interested in immunology, most universities offer immunology courses at the undergraduate level. I know McMaster does, uh, has, has a few courses, several, I think, in immunology. Um, so the best thing to do is to take a course and see if your interest is persists after that course. I mean, yeah. it's, as a field, it can be a little bit daunting to get into because it's very jargon heavy. And in, unlike, um, say, genetics, where we can say, you know, this promoter regulates this gene, in immunology, the, there's a lot of subtlety, there's a lot of nuance, and not everyone likes that. Um, and some people shy away from studying immunology because of that. And I don't blame them because, you know, I, I struggle with that too. Um, so I think just take a course and see whether this is something you want to do. Don't, don't rely on your exposure to the field by, you know, by whatever is in the popular literature or so on. You should, you should take a course. And if you do like it, then I think what I would recommend is um, think about what you might, what, intrigues you most about immunology and, and approach some professors and see if they're willing to take you on as a student in their lab during your undergraduate period. And at U of T, this is typically occurs in the summer of the third year that then uh, grows into a project, an honors project that would um, occur throughout your fourth year. And that's a good opportunity to get hands-on experience to see whether this is a field you want to pursue as a career. So those are the two main things that I would do is take a course and then if, it's, if you're still interested, do some lab work um, if that's available to you at your, at your university. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the emphasis on lab work and I think naturally you receive a lot of emails requesting to volunteer in your lab. What is your advice or what do you look for in prospective students in your lab and how do you think students can better contact professors through cold emailing or whatever method they choose? Yeah, it's really hard because we do get a lot of a lot of cold emailing and my lab is full right now, which is, you know, it's a pity because I get a lot of great people applying to the lab and COVID has further complicated things. We're only operating at 50% capacity. Mm -hmm. And so I have to give precedence to current lab members, especially graduate students and postdocs who have projects that are ongoing. And so I can't, um, I can't take up room in my lab for someone brand new when those people are already got a foot in the door. So it's, it's, it's tough. Um, you may want to think about approaching um, some of the um, PIs that are just starting because they're not as well, you know, they're not being bombarded as much by these, by these cold emails as someone who's more established. So students often just uh, apply to the, the professors that they, their names that they know. Um, but there's, but, but PIs that are just starting their labs are really a great um, can give you a really great training experience because it's they're going to have more time for you their lab is just big and um they they're really keen to to practice their mentorship um skills um so i would definitely consider some of the more junior pis to contact and then when you are contacting that contacting pis whether they be junior or senior um, a form letter is not going to work. Um, it might, you might not even get an answer to a form letter. But if, you, if you've identified a particular reason 
why you're interested in that person's lab and you articulate that in your letter, that will help you too. But don't get discouraged if you don't get replies because look, communicating this from the other end, from my end, if I get three or four of these per day, I'm not gonna necessarily even have time to answer all of them. So on top of all the other email load that we have from, from our, our workaday lives. So it's, um, don't be discouraged. Don't take it personally if you, if you have to contact tons and tons of people, but um, that's um, part of the process. And then most um, universities have programs where you take it as a course, for example, to do lab work. And in those cases, they're more, uh, there's more security in landing uh, a lab position because that's part of the course. Um, so like I said, there's an honors course at U of T um, in the immunology program that places students in labs, although the student has to identify the lab. And we give precedent to, to students who are in the specialist program um, as opposed to the major program because we have fewer students in the specialist program and they're taking more immunology courses than the majors. So if you're really, really interested in a topic, um, then um, I would recommend thinking about doing specialist programs that doesn't give you as much latitude, unfortunately, in terms of your electives, but it will potentially give you um, a bit of precedence, uh, what's the word, priority uh, in terms of getting a lab position. That is incredible advice, and I definitely think a lot of our listeners tuning in can benefit from that. And on that note, Dr. Jennifer, we would like to thank you so much for joining us here today and telling us all about your amazing work. Thanks, Halima, and good luck to you and all your colleagues.